This is the Nouvelle Nouvelle podcast, the new news and all things middling old, brought to you by the Ohio State University Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies, CMRS. I'm your host, Steve Barker, PhD candidate in Old English. Every two weeks, I sit down with a visiting lecturer or an OSU faculty or grad student to talk about their work and working lives, covering everything from the much-disputed decline and fall of the Roman Empire in late antiquity to the early modernity of the printing press, bustling international trade, and Renaissance humanism. Our scholars discuss inter alia, Beowulf, Chaucer and Shakespeare, Da Vinci and Michelangelo, the mystics and martyrs of the medieval church, nuns, monks and scholars, warriors and queens, the birth of the university, science and alchemy, fairies and the fantastic, and the ever-rising middle class with all its familiar exuberance and anxiety. Welcome to Nouvelle Nouvelle. My guest today is Emily Thornbury, Associate Professor of English at Yale University. She studies Old English and Anglo-Latin, focusing especially on the aesthetics of Latin and vernacular cultures. She's the author of Becoming a Poet in Anglo-Saxon England, a study of the various communities and identities from which Anglo-Saxon poets emerged. She's also the co-editor with Rebecca Stevenson of the volume of essays Latinity and Identity in Anglo-Saxon England. Her upcoming project is entitled The Virtue of Ornament, which, she writes, traces the non-classical, largely untheorized aesthetic principles of Anglo-Saxon art and literature through a series of productive encounters with classical forms. Ornament, understood in classical aesthetics mainly as an extraneous overlay or elaboration, but by Anglo-Saxons as a transformative act, provides an entryway into a world of thought in which surface and depth, proportion, symmetry, and value itself had very different meanings. By understanding how ornament worked for the Anglo-Saxons, we can glimpse alternative ways of reading, seeing, and understanding art. Later, later this afternoon, she will be giving a lecture on surface, depth, and interpretation in Beowulf. Uh, welcome, Emily. It's wonderful to have you here. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here. So tell me, if you would, a little bit about becoming a poet in Anglo-Saxon England. Um, what led you to take up the subject? Uh, what was unsatisfying or incomplete about previous accounts of Anglo-Saxon poets? Yeah, so this emerged partly out of my dissertation, which was implausibly vast. I wanted to give an account of all of poetic features of Old English and Anglo-Latin and understand how they work together as a seamless whole. And I realized that instead I should probably publish a book before I died. <laughs> so um, I decided to approach it by trying to understand just the very specific origin point of poetry. What sort of a person would learn to become a poet? What would it take for them to do that? What were mm -hmm. the circumstances in which it would benefit them? So I just decided to start from scratch and try to find out what our actual evidence was for who composed poetry. And there's actually more than we had thought, but a lot of that was about Latin. So mm -hmm. Um, the other thing that my book was trying to do uh, was to bring Latin poetry into the larger cultural equation because mm -hmm. it was very important to uh, the cultural lives 
of the sorts of people who wrote books. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still a huge swathe of people who might never have seen a book, but that's very, very difficult to get in, in touch with. Mm. And it does seem to be the, well, it's the difficulty I run into, the interesting difficulty of, you have the Anglo-Latin poets, and then you have this giant body of largely anonymous old English literature, and then somehow, in some ways, they they um, they existed together, right? But it's just so hard to say anything uh, true about how uh, about how that worked, right? Or who was? We can say a lot, and you do about uh, the Latin poetry, but it's harder to say as much about uh, the vernacular poetry. Yeah, that's certainly true. Um, and I think that, first of all, because people who wrote in Latin didn't make them less Anglo-Saxon mm-hmm. was a thing that I wanted to uh, bring to our minds. Um, and much of the Old English poetry was at least recorded in monastic contexts, mm-hmm. possibly by people who also wrote Latin poetry or at least were in contact with it. Um, so I felt like it did have some things, even if obliquely, to say to the composition of Old English poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing that I was interested in was simply how um, the people who composed poetry perceived themselves as part of a larger group mm-hmm. of people who were hearing it and uh, receiving it and thinking about it and maybe saying nasty things about it, uh, either to their face or behind their back. And so... <laughs> um, Thinking about how that expectation of being judged by others mm-hmm. worked out within the poetry and could give us a sense of both how the poets perceived themselves within that community, but also how they perceived that community could tell us, again, something about the experience of being a poet, even if we never knew the names mm-hmm. of some of the people who composed it in Old English or even in Latin. Mm. I like you, you say... Um things were said behind the back or possibly to the face. Um, it reminds me of, what is it, the school of Athelwald, isn't there? Oh, who is it? Anyway, these um, insult poems. Yes. Uh, Jorvik, is that his name? Something like that. Um, um, yeah, a Welsh teacher mm-hmm. uh, who got into a possibly imaginary altercation mm. um, with a student who might have been writing his side of the... Um, writing both sides of the conversation, uh. which always allows one to win. Um, but yeah, that's that's an interesting one that, um, again, tells us something about how poetry could be used in a, sort of a regular everyday social interaction. Mm-hmm. wasn't imagined as something so um, remarkable and set apart from daily life that only a special few groups mm. of people could aspire to compose it. Um, I think actually most people... Um, who spoke English would know how to compose mm-hmm. a poem in English. Mm. Whether they did or not, um, obviously impossible to say, but um, I think just like most people who speak English now could make up a limerick if you pressed mm-hmm. them, I think that um, poetry in Old English was something that wasn't necessarily set apart mm. in that way from the, just the ordinary lives of people. That's interesting because I know the rules seem complicated to me. Um, but it would make sense that if you're hearing it all the time, mm-hmm. it, it might not, you know, all the different sorts of deceivers uh, lines yeah. and all that. But then, which you do mention in the book, it's often uh, unlineated, right? So, which you would think means, oh, that's they can easily recognize this because they don't even feel the need to actually break things up 
at the half verse and the and the end of the line. Yeah, um, there's there's been a lot of recent work about that, thinking about how the books depend upon a certain kind of expectation of knowledge. Catherine O'Brien O'Keefe's Visible Song mm-hmm. was a key part of that, is showing how people's spoken knowledge of the language was an essential part of the textuality of the poetry. And mm-hmm. uh, more recently, Dan Donahue's uh, book on how the Anglo-Saxons read their poems mm-hmm. uh, works through this again, um, using um, modern psychology to understand mm-hmm. how people receive texts and uh, perceive the words within it. So um, I, I think that we're actually kind of in a golden age for mm. understanding better the perspective of the Anglo-Saxons as they uh, receive their poems and compose them. Hmm. Now, so I hope this isn't too much into the weeds, but um, I remember seeing in your book uh, a discussion, well, maybe not, a, you just mentioned that certain texts were marked up for oral performance. And I don't remember this well. I didn't know if you could, if you remember any of those. Uh, and I, I didn't put them on my pre-list of questions, so I don't mean to put you on the spot. Well. Uh, I don't know of any Old English poems that are marked up for oral mm. performance. There are some Latin okay, texts okay. that are mostly liturgical ones. Mm. Um, but um, there was a man sort of in turn of the millennium, uh, Winchester, uh, who made far more things into poetry than he otherwise need to be. He's called Wolfson Cantor Mm. because he was the cantor in charge of the music for the cathedral. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he also seems to have been exceptionally good at composing metrical Latin poetry. Mm. And uh, so from this era, we have all sorts of things that are are in verse that didn't need to be in verse, Mm. uh, but probably just because he liked it. Um, but his ear for music seems to have, um, well, it's difficult to know if it helped him with his com- composition of metrical Latin verse, but at least he did have a very acute ear for rhythm of all kinds. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was, he was part of Avalwald's circle yes. and um, what does the, the, the hermeneutic style was that, or was that earlier? Um, or Avalwald sort of in his circle revived that sort of hermeneutic style, or am yeah. I misremembering? Uh, you, you're remember, remembering absolutely correctly. So um, Wolfston studied with Athelwold. Um, he was very important, it seems like, in getting Athelwold made a saint hmm. uh, after his death. His students seemed to have loved him very dearly and put an enormous amount of work into creating a cult around him. Uh, some of the earliest uh, cult material is associated with uh, Wolfston. Mm. Uh, that's for Athelwold, again, very soon after his death. Um, Wolfston himself, interestingly, didn't write in hermeneutic Latin, which is this very esoteric form mm. that uh, very often uh, depends on the use of Greek glossaries to make up new words. There's a, there's a playing with Latin mm-hmm. um, in a level that's far beyond the functional um, in this style. And Wolfston's Latin is actually pretty normal. Mm. Um, whether that's, you know, he just, he wasn't involved in some of these uh, projects that really were intended for display of this sort is mm. difficult to know. Um, Perhaps I'm conflating um, his rhetorical flourishes with the hermeneutic style. So this is sort of a to my mind, at least, it's a similar urge to uh, display just 
through through music, say, or mm-hmm. through rhythm, rather than through um, the uh, overt display of learning. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, so this is this is connected with my project about ornament. Hmm. The idea that you create value in things by investing it with labor that's going to be manifest to mm-hmm. everyone. Um, if people can see that something has been highly worked by an artist, then you will have created value within it mm-hmm. um, that will then honor the purpose of that work of art. So hence the extreme elaboration of this cult material for Athelwold mm-hmm. that for them would have been the best way of honoring him. And that, But that can be manifest in all sorts of different ways, whether through um, importation of new musical styles, uh, through the creation of elaborate melismas in the music. And we see a lot of that going on in mm-hmm. um, Winchester of this period as well. Um, and the hermeneutic style, I think, is part of that. Uh, but it also seems to have been very explicitly monastic in a way that, unlike many of these other ornamentations, was seems to have been deliberately exclusive, intended to make monastic people who had the education to understand it feel part of the in-group mm-hmm. and to feel make everyone else essentially feel part of the out-group. Mm-hmm. Um, Rebecca Stevenson, my co-editor and the uh, um, editor uh, the collection of essays you mentioned mm-hmm. has done a lot of work on this and mm. uh, thinking about the the social implications of these levels of style hmm. yes sorry i'm trying to connect it to perhaps uh alfred Spada's colloquies uh, and my sense that um there and then in lots of latin text there's a certain and in the riddles as well um you can not hide exactly, but masks, say, sexual material. So this is things that would perhaps be shameful uh, otherwise. Mm-hmm. But if you uh, make them more hermeneutic, right, if you leave them to the in-group, to the learned, uh, then you can get away with discussing um, certain topics that might otherwise be taboo. Um, it's not, I suppose, that related to ornament, but it is part of that, mm. that identity that's created um, through a culture of mm, extreme learning. Yeah, I mean, there all are all sorts of ways in which um, this uh, investment of labor can be made exclusive, mm-hmm. as opposed to um, manifest to others. And I think that one of the things that's so interesting in Winchester around the time of the Benedictine reform is I think we did have multiple theories of how best to... Um, they would have described it as how best to serve God. Mm -hmm. Um, Others around them might have thought of how best to use your learning to assert your own social status or Mm -hmm. to gain power and influence. Um, And different of these groups obviously had different theories about how best to go about this. Mm. And I'm sure it's hard to separate, even within one's own mind, uh, to separate those things. How much am I doing this to show off, to mm, increase my status versus – it's not exactly a lie to oneself either, though, that one is glorifying God in these things. We don't sort of have diaries, I don't think, of uh, people struggling with this. Uh, It would be great if we did. And yes, it's true. Not everybody has – full insight into Mm -hmm. the full range of their own motivations. So there definitely could have been very mixed motives going on Mm. uh, in a lot of this work. Um, And the, like the sexual riddles are an 
interesting mm. puzzle, the question of whether or not this was being hidden from the uninitiated. What's so odd about that, though, is the sexual meaning, at least to most people, seems like the obvious one. Mm-hmm. And the um, the hidden, deep meaning mm-hmm. is actually a perfectly innocuous one, like onions or bread. Right. <laughs> That's true. I was thinking of the Latin riddles, but of course, it's the old English yeah. riddles, which would be available to anybody who could hear them or... Um, only the learned could read them, but anybody could. Uh, I don't want to go too, yeah. far, too, far, <laughs> too far into the riddles. Um, let me um, back up a little since you started talking about your, your new project. Um, so what do you mean or what are the varieties, I suppose, of ornament in the Anglo-Saxon period? And you, you sort of juxtapose them against um, at least some perhaps the strongest strain of classical argument that comes that certainly that comes through to the Anglo-Saxons, which is a more restrained uh, more restrained sense of ornament. Yeah. Um, so I guess the real dichotomy is between the idea that there is an essential thing which is within that's created by material, mm-hmm. um, which would be associated with the classical uh, world. So, for instance, in um, in Latin poetry, for instance, certain topics were just more valuable than others. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the founding of Rome is just an essentially more important topic than um, Romantic love, Mm -hmm. for instance. Um, And the style that you used to discuss that Mm -hmm. had to be commensurate. So it would be fitting to lavish a certain amount of attention on one kind of material, but not on another. And when there's dichotomy between that, that's usually funny. So Mm -hmm. there's a pseudo-Virgilian poem uh, called the Culex, which is a heroic epic about a, a fly. And... Uh, to the Romans, this was hilarious. Um, mm-hmm. This disjunction between style and material. Mm-hmm. The Anglo-Saxons did also copy this poem, and mm. I'm not sure to them that it would have been comic. I think rather that by lavishing this attention on this apparently mm. unworthy topic. You actually create worth in it, or you reveal worth in it. I think I'm not sure that there would be a, a difference between it. I think, although I actually do think it would be considered transformative, that mm-hmm. it would invest your subject with the value um, through your labor and then reveal it to others mm. in that way. Um, so... For the Anglo-Saxons, more was always more. Mm -hmm. Um, It wouldn't be a matter of something being sort of tastelessly overworked. Mm. Um, You you couldn't, you could probably destroy something by putting bad work into it. Mm -hmm. But the more you invested it with artistic labor, Mm -hmm. the greater the value the thing would have. So you could transform your apparently unworthy topic by virtue of ornamenting it in this way. Mm. And so I think that's one of the reasons that people sometimes have difficulty interpreting Mm -hmm. some Anglo-Saxon art, because there appear to be just these disjunctions between um, the style and the subject matter. Or if we're looking at visual art between uh, the border and the the center, Mm -hmm. for instance, um, and that has to do with, I think, essentially 
different ways of understanding how value comes about. So what is the ornamental nature of vernacular poetry? Um, I mean, certainly alliteration. Is it um, kennings, I guess? Uh, the repetition of you know, noun phrases, sort of many different ways to say the same thing. Um, yeah, I think so. All of these manifestations of artistic labor, mm -hmm. I think, would would be analogous to a, a visual ornament. Mm -hmm. it, a, a thing that you could hear with your ears as being uh, above what is purely necessary to the mere mm -hmm. um, rendering of the information. All of this would um, be a way of constituting the... Mm -hmm value and the significance of what it is that you are discussing. Um, so excess of alliteration would mm -hmm. be one way of doing that. In some past, so Old English poetry, um, each line has to have at least two alliterating stresses, mm -hmm. one in the first half, one in the second half. But you can have an additional alliterating stress in the first half. And that's more difficult. You just It's harder to think up mm -hmm. three words than it is just two. Um, so the more the difficulty, the more the value of what it is that you're creating. And so certain passages will be full of these double alliterating lines. And others will have fewer and will be... Uh, oftentimes something more of a, a background or an interstitial passage that's leading up mm. to the kind of crescendo. Um, extended lines, the hypermetric passages, those are another way of um, using aural devices to mm -hmm. function as ornament. Hmm. And do, you, do we see the Anglo-Saxons explicitly reacting against, or this is just something you sort of, um, you've observed, are they reacting against Classical, because I think I think I said in the introduction from your uh, that the classical tradition does influence them, but mm -hmm. then they take it and sort of well invest more, invest more or different sorts of energy um, into the same sorts of things. Yes, um, and that's what I'm going to be talking about ah. in uh, this afternoon's lecture. But there are several periods at which you can see the Anglo-Saxons experimenting with mm -hmm. classical aesthetics, and it's not that they um, it's not that they didn't necessarily understand or that they just uh, reflexively rejected um, the art that was to them coming from primarily from Rome, although there was possibly some Byzantine in, uh, influence mm -hmm. as well, um, and there were often very interested in this. And so in the 8th century, at Wormuth Jarrow, for instance, a couple of very influential and um, intellectually ambitious abbots uh, started a program of Romanizing this uh, monastery, uh, bringing in uh, a, a cantor from Rome to teach them the Roman style of music, bringing in builders from Gaul, which mm -hmm. to them, which which at that point would have been continuing use of Roman building styles. Mm -hmm. um, and that probably included stone carvers as well as architects. Mm -hmm. So there uh, was introduced a new style of deep relief. Um, in the Codex Amiatinus, this vast Bible, which was, um, in fact, one of three enormous pandects of the Bible that were produced at Wormuth Jarrow, um, we see experimentation with um, visual perspective, 
which mm. was not a major feature of earlier art. Um, but um, each of the miniatures in the Codex Amiatinus displays a different kind of experiment with perspective. Mm. And other artists at the time, I think, were interested in this, mm. but deliberately rejected it mm. um, because uh, they saw perspective, I think, as limiting mm. rather than as revealing. So this would be, uh, that would perhaps be the classical perspective, right? That, um, yeah. well, so without perspective, you can make things bigger in terms of how important they are, right? Or things get arranged almost exclusively in terms of how important they are or uh, maybe some other effects rather yeah. than realism. Yes, exactly. So um, I mean, one of the things that's so impressive about the uh, miniatures in the Codex Amiatinus is how modern they look mm -hmm. because they are using this uh, field of visual depth. And it's, it's a slightly weird perspective, um, but that is not necessarily a deviation from late antique use of it, which is not precisely like the Renaissance um, very geometrically precise, single vanishing point, mm -hmm. a single um, sort of monocular observer that was all very calculated. Um, this is a little bit more freeform than that in keeping probably with their um, earlier Roman models. But what they, all of these forms of perspective have in common is a demotion of the surface, the creation that it's, the idea that is transparent, that what you're looking into is a space. Mm -hmm. And so it's a dissolution of the surface. And I think that that was experienced by many Anglo-Saxon artists as a loss. It's hmm. fascinating. Do, would you like to talk at all about your lecture for the day? Or would you well, like I kind of just have. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. well, um, so how does that uh, relate uh, to Beowulf then, I suppose? Um, well, Beowulf... Um, so the, the Beowulf poet, I believe, was thinking through um, these ideas about surface and depth, seeing them as connected to modes of interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, so, for instance, the idea that um, the true meaning of a text was hidden beneath it, for instance, um, and which was a very common metaphor in mm -hmm. biblical exegesis, for instance, that you had to unwrap the husk to get to the kernel. Mm -hmm. And I think that the Beowulf poet was interested by this, but um, found it ultimately uh, terrifying more than it was revealing. Um, and I, th I believe that we see this worked through in a variety of ways that suggests that the poet had fully internalized this who and understood many of its potentialities, mm -hmm. was experimenting with them, but didn't really ultimately believe that they were an improvement on what had come before. Mm. And that's not the way that all Anglo-Saxons reacted to this idea. Um, so the Venerable Bede, who was working in Wearmouth Jarrow at the very time that the Codex Amiatinus was put together, uh, wrote a number of extremely important works of biblical exegesis where he considered this uh, fourfold meaning, who was very interested in uncovering the deeper spiritual truth. Mm. And it helped him in many ways, I think, see the idea of 
recessive truth is perhaps analogous also to recessive time and help him to understand the uh, how to represent historical difference. The idea that people in the past thought differently from mm-hmm. us, that some of that can be excavated, mm-hmm. put together by a variety of means. Um, and that at the same time, the past is fundamentally removed from the present, mm. um, which is not a normal or natural way of thinking about the world, but it is one that has uh, made Bede seem like such a modern historian in some ways, mm. that makes his method seem intelligible in the ways that many other medieval writers working with historical representation do not seem modern uh, because they don't seem to ha- have this interest in representing the d- true distance of the, uh, the mm. difference of the past. The idea that it's removed from us um, in a way that could be imagined almost as physical. So you're juxtaposing, you're opposing Bede and the Beowulf poet. Is that right? So the Beowulf poet is sort of anti-allegorical. Time exists sort of as a, I mean, he has a sense of the past clearly, but sort yeah. of everyone it also feels like a sort of continuous now, I suppose. And so he's, you would say, he is focused on the surface of things and so anti, anti-allegorical. Yes. At the same time, I think that he recognized and was excited. So I'm talking about the Beowulf poet now. Mm-hmm. He was excited with by this idea of the distance of the past. And one of the mm-hmm. things that is so remarkable about Beowulf as a poem is the coherence of its past world, which is Mm non-Christian. So I think that he was playing with some of these ideas and methods as well, but didn't fundamentally see them as as benign as Mm. Bede did. Hmm. Could you say more about that? Or Um, or why would they be malign, I suppose? Um. The, I think that he sees the rejection of the surface as leading to really a, a loss of any sort of true epistemological method that if you believe that the truth is on the surface, then it is accessible and knowable mm. by everyone. Whereas if it's hidden away, then only a few people maybe will be able to get to that truth. But also there's the question of how will you ever know that you have got to mm. that truth? No, I like that. So I mean, it's almost, well, maybe it is, uh, the sort of the yawning gulf of relativism, um, or at least the danger of that, because if you can't know, then all sorts of possibilities. Yeah. One, one can make the truth sort of whatever one wishes. Yeah. And this is, um, this was a later medieval objection to allegory in mm. some points that there's a point beyond which you're just making all of this up. This isn't really in the text. We need to go back to the literal meaning. And this is a, it's a very frequent sort of pattern of oscillation, I suppose, mm. in uh, biblical interpretation. So that these, these ideological currents that I see being played out in Anglo-Saxon England are not limited to Anglo-Saxon England mm-hmm. by any means. I think that um, this... Um, tension between the idea of the the surface as mm-hmm. um, where uh, where meaning is and should lie 
uh, versus the depth where you need expertise in order to uncover it, mm. or the idea of labor as what constitutes the value of a work of art versus some inner quality of material, of um, subject matter. Mm. These are things that play out over and over. If you go to a Museum of Modern Art, you'll hear people saying, oh, my five-year-old could do that. <laughs> these are people who are working in some ways mm. with a similar value system. They want, when they look in work of art to feel like they couldn't have done that. Mm. And there's something about the concreteness of Anglo-Saxon poetry as well. And there's something there that it's still words, so it's not actually tangible. It is more tangible, I, I suppose, than a hidden meaning uh, behind things. It's also interesting, I don't know if you're working sort of with the idea of wisdom literature or where Again, I think that while everything is open to interpretation, it's not the same sort of interpretation as allegorical interpretation. You sort of have a set of, say, maxims or historical events that are at least relatively stable, and you can sort of agree on the facts if, if they are such. And then the, um, the exegesis, such as it is, is, was this a wise decision? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, or what would what would the wise decision in these circumstances be? And, uh, yeah, where uh, the process of getting to truth is one about sort of exchange and circulation rather than mm. uncovering. Hmm. Well, very good. How are we on time? Uh, quarter to two now. Okay. Uh, well, let me just ask. Yeah, let me. I'll just ask one more question about sort of. Uh, so, what do you think of? How is the field of Old English doing these days? Um, what trends do you see that are new and exciting? Or anything else you'd like to talk about uh, in the field of Old English? Um, I mean, there are a lot of exciting things going on in the field of Old English these days. Um, people are more interested in prose um, than they had been in the past. A lot of work is going on in saints' lives, uh, which are fascinating texts in a number of different ways. And I think that people are doing exciting works uh, work in figuring out the ideological currents that go into them, um, but also the different kinds of modes of representation and genre mixing that we see within uh, these saints' lives as literature. Uh, Ecocriticism seems to be very popular. Mm -hmm. People are very interested in the relationship between the Anglo-Saxons and the natural world, um, which for the early Middle Ages is always an interesting uh, topic because ecologically it was a strange moment in Europe um, there was a retreat from the cities mm -hmm. in many um, of the former Roman provinces, including Britannia. So people had a very different relationship to the landscape mm. in this period than they would have even in the later Middle Ages. Um, so I think it's that's a potentially very fruitful method of approach. Um, no, there's there's all sorts of different directions that people are uh, approaching this material from, and uh, I I feel optimistic about the future of Anglo-Saxon studies. Very good. And my guest today has been Emily Thornbury, uh, professor of English at Yale. Thank you very much, Emily. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Nouvelle Nouvelle podcast. The Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies would like to thank its constituent faculty from anthropology, architecture, classics 
comparative studies, dance, East Asian languages and literatures, English, French and Italian, German, history, the history of art, linguistics, music, Near Eastern languages and cultures, philosophy, Slavic, Spanish and Portuguese, and theater. If you would like to appear on the show, please contact cmrs at osu.edu. Thank you, as always, to Fior Angelico, a Columbus Early Music Group, for our theme music. Until next time. <laughs>